All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckologists? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF, welcome. Welcome to it. If there's any new people out there, how are you? Nice to nice nice to have you. Thanks for coming by. All you regulars, as always, nice to talk to you. On the show today, my friend, old friend, well, it's like, I guess we're friends, but, you know, in my community of comedians that spans almost 40 years now, I feel like I know almost all the guys I've met even for 10 minutes. But this guy I used to see all the time at the Comedy Cellar. His name's Michael Rowe. That's to differentiate him from Mike Rowe, the guy who does the weird, dirty job show or whatever the hell he does. I've never seen it. But Michael Rowe, uh, I knew him as a comic back in the day, back in the, at the cellar in the late 80s, early 90s. He became an Emmy-winning writer and producer working on Futurama and Family Guy. He's got a book out. And uh, it just is sort of like, I always got a kick out of him uh, in a very specific way. And I wanted him to come on and talk about the book, tell some stories. Uh, also, I should tell you that Stand Up Records just partnered with the Richard Pryor estate to release three deluxe double LPs of Richard's stand-up. These are uh, amazing time capsules and 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 sort of small comedy masterpieces. His self-titled Richard Pryor is one of the albums. His 1971 release, Craps After Hours, uh, is another. And Live at the Comedy Store in 1973, which has never been released on vinyl until now. This is at the peak of Richard doing Richard 1973. He was the king of the comedy store. He kind of that place was was sort of built on his back. And uh, all three of these things have bonus tracks, gatefold covers and exclusive color versions. Uh, you can order them at standuprecords.com. That's my buddy Dan Schlissel's outfit. Uh, Dan Schlissel has released, I guess, well, he recorded my second record, my third record. I believe that I think that's it. But he he's also now uh, he also is the distributor of of I think at least four or five of my albums. But uh, he definitely did Ticket Still Available and uh, Final Engagement, which is uh, Angry Heartbroken Man's uh, favorite uh, album of mine. Final Engagement is a a uh, just a a a, a document of angry heartbreak. And uh, complete existential uh, despair. I, I can get behind that one. I can get behind all of them, actually. Uh, but I think that one is relatively timeless. I, I really try to make my records uh, have a little life to them so they're not dated. But anyway, yeah, get all those. Uh, go look at the catalog over there. He used to record Maria Bamford's records. I don't know what he's got up over there. But StandUpRecords.com for these uh, brand new re-releases of a couple of Richard Pryor records and the first time ever on vinyl Comedy Store 1973. So that's exciting, especially for comedy nerds and, and record collectors alike. Dates. I've been doing the Dynasty typewriter. I was there night before last and it's getting weird. Uh, but I'm there next week, Tuesday, July 25th uh, and at Largo on Thursday, July 27th. I'll be at the Salt Lake City Wise Guys on August 11th and 12th for four shows. I'm at Helium in St. Louis on September 14th through 16th for five shows. Then I'm at the Las Vegas Wise Guys on September 22nd and 23rd, also four shows. And in October, I'm at Helium in Portland, Oregon on October 20th through 22nd. You can go to WTFPod.com for tickets. And uh, Portland, you, you know, you can, 
I understand maybe I've said some things that you consider uh, insensitive or uh, not quite uh, perceptive about the condition of your city. I'm open-minded. I love Portland. And the last couple of times, I just got a little nervous. And it seemed like there was uh, some block-to-block issues. Like some blocks were good, some blocks not so good. But I guess uh, not unlike a lot of places. But uh, Portland's kind of small, kind of tight. But uh, I'm certainly always willing to engage because I do, I do love that part of the country. I, it's, I'm not apologizing per se, but don't, you know, don't shut me out. You know what I mean? I, I do. Uh, I always enjoy performing there. So the strike, you know, I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go pick it with some fellas and some ladies. I, uh, Heidecker, Tim Heidecker reached out, said we should get out there on the picket line. I'm like, okay, I'm game. You know, I've certainly talked about it a bit, uh, but like, yeah, let's do it. So we're going to go out Friday. But uh, Heidegger was like, we got to get some uh, got to get some funny people out there. <laughs> I'm like, OK. So on Friday morning, it's I, all I know is it's me and Heidegger and Peretti. I think Joe Mandy's in. We'll see. But uh, I want to get out there and be part of the uh, the action, part of the action, standing up for for uh, union strong stuff, for the for the uh, for the for the points that are being negotiated or the points that are sticking or the points that need to be reevaluated. There's a lot of them, but some of it has to do obviously with AI and, and, and a big part of it is the background actors being sort of uh, uh, their souls being taken in the form of uh, imaging and, and AI and they just kind of get a flat rate and then they, they, who they are on screen gets used you know, for infinity. But here's the interesting thing about the union and, and why it matters. And, and, and this is a point that I didn't even know. Now, I imagine some of you have watched the horror of Dolores Roach. I finally watched the episode I'm in, and, and, and I know there's a couple other ones, but it's not all of me. See, and I get spoiler alert. Here's your spoiler alert about my episodes of the horror of Dolores Roche. So if you want to jump off for a minute or two, do it. So in the show, I'm the first to be murdered in this uh, Sweeney Todd homage and, and put into empanadas. Now I get killed, but pieces of me are hanging in the meat locker, right? And they go into that meat locker. Now, in order for that to be effective and work, I needed, you know, they had to put a body mold on me and they had to make, these pieces of me, my head, I think maybe one of my arms. But the thing is, is we didn't even know this. And I, I remember my manager, you know, calling me about it and him saying, look, man, uh, he, he doesn't talk like that. He has an Australian accent. But he basically said, look, we're getting, we're getting, you know, paid for those pieces of you to appear on screen. Now, I don't think it was equivalent to a day's work, but there was a precedent set that if you're going to use the parts of me and they're identifiable, then I'm on screen and I deserve compensation, which is reasonable. But that had to be a contract point uh, that somebody fought for. And now it's part of our, our compensation. And not unlike AI, that, you know, anytime a piece of you appears, even if it's a apparition, you should be paid every time it's used. So... There's a precedent. Look, man, I got paid for my head hanging in a meat locker because you could tell it was me. But that's why you need union protection. So they can't say, fuck you, you're not really on screen. It's just your head and we paid you already. No, no. I'm making an appearance as a head. 
So compensate me. But I thought that was interesting because it is you know, definitely relative to why union protection is important. Okay, look, you guys, uh, Mike Rowe is here. Michael Rowe. I, I knew him as Mike. I'll call him Mike. He wrote a book a few years ago called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald. You can get that wherever you get books. And this was, it was kind of fun to catch up with Mike because I really don't think I've sat down and talked to him since we were at the Comedy Cellar in the early 90s. <laughs> When did you write the book? Like two years ago. So it's been a while. Yeah. And did you self-publish it, or how does that work? No, no, I got a publisher. Yeah. Um, you know, he's ripping me off, but yeah. that's fine. You can't make money in books. No. no. I mean, what do you... <laughs> did you enjoy writing it? I had a blast. Yeah. You know. Because uh, a lot of things shake loose, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny. I Like, I had no control over it. It just came out of me. I'm just going. I'm just yeah. typing. Yeah. I'm typing. I'll look up, and like, all of a sudden, I type 20 pages. Like, mm-hmm. Um, so it was really cathartic, yeah. but, um, I, I thought of in terms of like when I was a kid and I was like 17, yeah. 16, 17 and just loved stand up. Mm-hmm. And I, and I knew then I was going to do it, Yeah, you know, and I'm living in this little city town in Connecticut yeah. and I'm, so, um, I'm thinking about how, how can I do this? And. I tried to imagine when I wrote this, imagine if there was a book like this available to me at that age, of yeah. like following someone's journey. I, I even think it applies to even everyday people who like think they have this idea of this impossible dream and it's so impossible, I'm not going to do it. But, yeah. You know, but I, I thought it was interesting, though, because you gravitated towards joke structure, like you were writing jokes. You saw jokes, you know, that like when I thought of doing comedy when I was younger, it was because I had something to say. Mm-hmm. And so it was very vague to me how anyone even begins to do that. But somehow or another, you managed to see the nuts and bolts of it very early on. Right. That it was about joke writing. For me, it was like, I'm just going to go out there and speak my mind, man. I I love the musicality of a yeah. joke, the structure, just yeah. the, the power of it. So where'd you go? What was it in Connecticut? Waterbury, Connecticut. I feel like I did one-nighters there when I worked for Barry Katz. Yeah, it sounds about right. There was a place called Tavern Near the Green. Oh, yeah? Um, the Red Bull Inn. Yeah. It got to the point like when I Waterbury. was living. Waterbury. What's that near? Uh, it's kind of up near the middle of the state above Hartford. Yeah, man. Um, not, not much going on there? Or? It was, when I was a kid, man, it was uh, this factory town yeah. on the downswing. Yeah. Uh, it was getting really depressed. And even as a kid, I knew like, man, I can't. You got people there still? Uh, some, yeah. My sister's there. Oh, really? Uh, did it bounce back? No, it got worse. It actually got worse. Um, but what was great is my dad owned this shitty bar in the seventies. Yeah. I was a kid and I hung out there. How old are you? I'm 63. I'm 59, a little older. So that's good. You caught the good part of the 70s. You were like relatively conscious. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a bit, what a, a, like a, just a dirty bar? It was this stinky, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. Uh, shitty gin mill. Yeah. There was like pimps, you know, and really? just yeah. drunk regulars and, yeah. and like some hookers oh, really? once in a while. Yeah. Um, but this was, uh, you know, ages like eight to 11. Oh, that's so prime. Um, it's like you saw real, real adulthood in its worst form. 
<laughs> my dad <laughs> had a go-go dancer mm-hmm. once a week. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I was old enough to know, like, what happens? What, what, what? This, yeah, where is this going? Is this like, does she get naked? Is there yeah, a sexual yeah. act? Does she read poetry? I yeah. don't know. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And every week I'm like, it's it's going to happen. I'm going to see it happen tonight because my dad would just pull me out of there, you know, yeah. nine o'clock showtime. Yeah. yeah. But he didn't mind keeping you there. Why, your mom didn't care that you were there? Well, it was always like, you know, the car ride home more than once. It was yeah. like, yeah. don't tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But So you just liked hanging out down there? Yeah. It was one of those things. My grandfather had a hardware store in New Jersey. And I just like going there, not because it, it's not the same, but there were these old men that used to hang around in the hardware store and just tell stories. And I just thought it was the greatest thing. Yeah, that's kind of what I saw, too, at it, even at this young age of, like, there was also, he had, like, 10 softball bear teams, you know? Yeah. And these 20-something-year-old dudes that were just funny, and I'm just watching yeah. sort of this humor through yeah. camaraderie. Yeah, And right. making fun of the drunks at the bar, and I'm yeah. going, oh, shit, I can do that. Is you can it, make fun of people, and you make friends. And yeah. Isn't know. it weird to have, like, a 20-year-old seem like a fucking grown-up? I know. <laughs> it's so crazy. But, uh, like, when I was a kid, when I was, like, 11... Like I was a huge comedy fan too, and like and I and I've told this story, but it, I think it's what kind of changed my life was that I talked my parents into taking me to see Jackie Vernon, who was doing the lounge at the Hilton Hotel in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I must have been eleven years old, and we were right up front. It was a little place, and I could see like him sweating. I could see the whole thing, and it was just uh, it kind of burned into my brain. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. It, did it feel like he was struggling, though? I mean, is he just... No, I mean, like, I had, I just loved watching comedy on TV, so I would see him do the slideshow thing. and I. But I think I realized that there was a whole life and world there that was not as clean and as uh, as pat as you, you would see them on TV. You know, because this is an older guy probably at that yeah. time. And uh, it's, uh, and, you know, when you sit up close, even when I do TV now, if I... If I'm too close to the host or something with the makeup, you're like, oh, my God, it's all, you know, what are they hiding? How do they look the way they do when I watch them at home? Yeah. Um, I think I thought he was funny. But th- all those old school guys to me mm. were and still are hilarious. I mean, you talk about the musicality of the jokes and it was oh, yeah. all that style. Yeah. And I kind of grew up in a stressful house, you know. Why? Uh, my dad, Korean War, Marine. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Uh, got whacked with shrapnel, burnt out his arm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Got his purple heart, went back in, fought again. You know, and he kind of- Was he PTSD guy or no? Not? but he kind of learned discipline yeah. through boot camp. Right. And he decided that's how he's going to sort of run the house. So great Santini? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I felt like the only time the family felt- kind of happy and comfortable together yeah. was watching comedy on TV. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like um, that Tonight Show and stuff? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with my dad watching the old time comics. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was fantastic. I mean, yeah. it, it's the, it, we were bonding through comedy. Right. So you could see how it's just burning. Who were his it's guys? A, uh, Dangerfield. Yeah. Henny. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rickles. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah, that was the same with my grandmother. It was a, sort of a similar thing, that there was this uh, appreciation yeah, in fact, uh, 
I was obsessed with that thing at the back of the parade magazine, my favorite jokes. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. They were just written right there. And it was like a new comic every week. And I would just look at them. I didn't see a lot of them live. I didn't know who a lot of them were, but I loved reading the jokes. Yeah. What I did for my dad's 60th birthday. Yeah. Uh, and my dad was living in Connecticut still at the time. He had a, actually a nice house. He was in real estate by this time. Yeah. So he was making more money. But he had this- Got rid of the bar? Got rid of the bar, much to my disappointment. I still <laughs> lament. And Have you gone back and looked for the bar? The, uh, the building is there. Now it's a rehab place. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, his 60th birthday, he yeah. was having a big party. And yeah. it was the big finished off basement you know, with the bar in there and everything. And there was like a hundred of his- relatives and best friends and yeah uh so i hired henny youngman to show up at the party as oh, a surprise how much did that cost you <laughs> <laughs> uh it was two grand and, and i had to sit with henny at lunch at wolf's deli <laughs> yeah where is wolf's deli in waterbury and uh, in uh, new york city in 57 oh, oh, oh um which was uh, uh, by the way that was fantastic just to sit and have lunch with henny youngman yeah you know? was it was that the first time you met a guy uh how old were you this was, I was older. I was oh, okay. in like 30-ish or something. Oh, so you've been you know? in it for a while. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I had connections to get to him yeah. and that sort of thing. But How was he? It, it was fantastic because, yeah. first of all, if, you know, Henny Ummins showing up at your house in the middle of Connecticut, yeah. it, it's like if, if the Who showed up at your 60th, you know. <laughs> did, you, did you have to drive him? No, I, I had to hire a driver. Okay, yeah. Um, but... You know, they had a sound system set up for the DJ and whatever, and I came up, and then I could tell my dad's like, oh, is he going to do some of his act? Yeah, you right. Yeah. Uh, and then I said, I got a friend of mine from New York who wants to say something. And Henny came down this basement stairs yeah. with the loud jacket and the violin yeah. and just went at it. Yeah. And my dad saw this, and he I've never seen him this excited. Just got up <laughs> off the chair, like, pirouetted with excitement. <laughs> yeah. And Henny did 20 minutes, Yeah, you know? Uh -huh. My dad's heckling him. It's oh, yeah. like the whole thing. And <laughs> it, um, it was great. Yeah. It's funny. Henny, too, was like, uh, you know, your dad, I bet he, I bet he liked one of uh, my joke books. Uh, I'll sign it for him. I'll bring the joke book. That's great. <laughs> so after the event, yeah. he goes out to the car, and he's got these two boxes. Help me bring these in. He's got two boxes of joke books. <laughs> He sets up a merch table. <laughs> in the basement? Yeah. At your house? Did he move any? He moved it. Well, he did. He moved. Uh, he ended up giving them all away, right? I, I didn't yeah. know what was going on. He ended up giving them away. Yeah. And then he calls me the next day. Uh, so that's uh, uh, 400 for the books. I'm like, <laughs> what are you, what's happening? What? It's for my uh, charity. Uh, you know? Oh, my God. I'm like, but right. But when something like that happens, did it? Like, were you, where were you in your career at that point? What what year was that like? This was uh, mid, late 80s. All right, so it was around when I met you, maybe a little before. Yeah. So you were kind of still just doing stand-up. Yeah, yeah. You're not a, a writer yet. No, I probably started by then, too. To write on what? Uh, well, at that time, there was a ton of... Uh, or the basic cable Cable shows. stuff, Caroline's yeah. Comedy Hour. Uh, oh, you were writing this bits on that or writing for the yeah, hosts and stuff? Yeah, wraparound for Carol Liefer. Oh, right. Well, she was the first host when it was down the seaport, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. I did that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, all right. So, but but that moment where you realize that the hustle of it, that that these, because I remember the first time I, I realized that comics did corporate gigs or would do almost anything, even these people that you respect and and have a, a certain amount of reverence to are are available and probably not that much money. Right. It's a little bit 
I don't know if it's heartbreaking, but it's certainly humanizing. Well, it's funny because I went through this stage when I was doing stand-up when I was like literally 25 not, or a little older where I kind of realized as a stand-up, yeah. I'm not going to be Carlin. I'm not going to be Robert Klein. That, that's the best realization you can have. So it's like, well, what the fuck am I going to do? Yeah. And I've been having luck as a writer. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm I like – even then, in my twenties, going on the road, I'm like, "This sucks. I just hate it." Like the, yeah. the owner wants to pay in cocaine, yeah. and there's, you know, yeah. uh, I come home, I got bed bugs, and I've been drinking for three weeks. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> Did I, you really I, get bed bugs? And some kind of yeah, <laughs> I, got, I had some weird rash. I came I'm like, I, I can't. Yeah, no, it's hard. Um, so it's like I, I don't want to be fifty and and doing that. I don't want to be fifty. I can't do cruise ships. I can't, you know, and. Mm. And I've always been kind of leaning towards the writer thing because, uh, again, as a kid, I would, with my little cassette, record all the comedians yeah. on The Tonight Show, wherever yeah. they would show up, and just listen and break it down. And Really? And, like how old? Uh, 16, 17. So with the cassette player, you're, you're, you're recording everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then I would try to understand it, and then I would tell my friends those jokes. Yeah. I, I'm 16 and doing jokes about my mother-in-law. Yeah. But... Uh, but one time, uh, Rodney, who was my favorite, came on The Tonight Show, and it was one of the rare times where Johnny got him in, like, a normal conversation. Oh, yeah, it's rare. And, the only time that you'd see that, usually when you'd see that wall break, is when jokes would die. He's yeah. like, is that Mike set right? Does yeah. that mean do all the <laughs> but I, this is when I found out he started in the Catskills as Jack Roy. Yeah. And he had this comedy club in Manhattan. He had Dana right. Fields. And then my uh, my gears in my head started turning. And yeah, I thought, you know, I'm I know his jokes so well. Yeah, what happens if I send him some jokes? Right, I can send them to Jack Roy. Yeah, at at Dangerfield. Yeah, got out my mom's you know manual typewriter yeah. and just sat down and wrote like page and a half of jokes. Yeah, send him Rodney a, jokes. Yeah, Rodney jokes. Yeah. At least what I thought were Rodney. Yeah. jokes. Yeah, and uh, send him off, and I'm like. What am I thinking? You know, what a... Yeah, he's a comedy star. But, I, I mean, as a kid, I, I kind of, when I think back, I kind of admire the fucking chutzpah. Just yeah, yeah, why not? So, you know, a couple of weeks go by, and I just yeah. kind of forget about it. And I'm in my uh, paneled basement bedroom, and the phone rings, like, after dinner time. <laughs> uh, my mom's at the top of the stairs. Yeah. Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you? Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, my 17-year-old... Head, you know, picked up. Hello, hello. Yeah. Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? Hey, I'm like, well, hello. Yeah, well, yeah, I got your jokes. You know, they're pretty good. They're all right. You know, they're not for me, but they're good. Yeah. And uh, he kept me on the phone for like fifteen minutes. You know, saying you got to do this, and this is important. And then yeah. I told him, um, can I be a stand up? I want to be, a, you know. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, there's the improv. There's a thing. Don't yeah. come to my club. It's no good. You know. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And. uh but I felt like at that age, you know, if I'm getting a thumbs up from Rodney, I go, you know, I ran to my mom. I'm like, I'm going to move to New York and be a comedian. And parents, you know, are like, you know, right. or, or a ballerina or yeah. an astronaut, whatever kids <laughs> want to be. Fireman. Yeah. Well, that's so, like, as a grown-up person, though, you realize what a menschy fucking thing that was to do, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, what a sweet fucking guy to, like, do that. Like, you know, he appreciated, like, because, you know. Comics, you know, of a certain stars of a certain uh, status, they throw that kind of shit away all the time. I know. I I, I never got it. Uh, and then, in fact, he sent me a letter. I showed up like a week later, just like a whole thing of like it's going to take years before you find out what's funny. And it's like, oh, he thought he was too encouraging. I, I, <laughs> I was. He wanted, he wanted to temper your excitement a little bit. 
<laughs> I, I, I ultimately, when I got to New York, I, I ended up writing some jokes for him. And in his club, he's got his basement uh, dressing room, no wind, you know. Yeah. And I'm I'm st- I'm still like eighteen, nineteen, and I'm got my little yeah. pages of jokes, yeah. and he's pacing, and he's in the robe. Yeah, I'm like uh, my wife. <laughs> yeah, and a nothing's landing. Yeah, and at one point he stops, and I'm like, oh, did I hit? And then he turns around and starts peeing in the sink. <laughs> you don't give me a toilet down here, you know. I got to pee in the sink. Like, right. Did he? Did you? Did he remember you? Did you bring up that you had written him? Well. I don't know. I, I know Rodney back then is like if a young comic had jokes for him, he would just sure you know, you know this is great. Just come over. You yeah, know. and I'll take them. Yeah, what do you pay? Like fifty bucks a joke? It was fifty. That's not bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. Joan Rivers was like ten bucks. Oh, really? A joke. You tried writing for all of them? Yeah, uh, I wrote for Rip Taylor. Oh, really? Uh, I'm reading a good book, The History of Crazy Glue. I can't put it down. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> fifty bucks, man. <laughs> So, but when do you, uh, like, I, like, it's weird because I always knew Rodney, but I actually think I grew to appreciate him more in the last decade Mm. than I did when I was younger as like, you know, really kind of the truest stand up, one of them in terms of just being, you know, a guy who's going for laughs a second, you know? Yeah. And also like, I feel like in the big picture, he doesn't, you know, now and or posthumously actually doesn't get the respect he deserves. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I feel like all those old timers are kind of starting to fade away. You know, the Friars Club closed down and mm. that was part of the history of it all. And, you know. Well, they're all dead. Yeah. And what happens? Why do some things, you know, live on and some fade out? Oh, in terms know? of like people remembering them yeah, or having yeah. a place. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like. I will sometimes watch, like, I don't watch YouTube much, but sometimes if I'm just sitting there, I'll just tr- cycle through Rickles and Rodney appearances on on Johnny. And it's the greatest thing in the world. Because yeah. I remember from when I was a kid, but I don't think I was as attuned, you know, to them as a comic as I am now. Those moments that w- when they fall flat, it's it's the best. Huh. It's the best. I, I worked on, uh, Martin Short had a... Uh, syndicated talk show um, yeah i remember that and i wrote on that and marty knew how much i i, I loved uh, rickles and rickles was going to be on the show yeah was like we'll yeah. work it out i make sure i'll make sure you meet him yeah i went out i bought a hockey puck <laughs> for him to sign you know <laughs> yeah. and uh so uh i'm like waiting in the hallway yeah the, he, they're finishing the segment on the show and i'm yeah. like you know it's it's like i'm uh you know, stalking him or something, right. you know, but, but Marty wants to introduce me to him. So yeah. like the show's over, then and he comes out with his group and they kind of walk by and I'm like the, 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 the lowly fan just kind of, yeah, yeah. oh shit, I missed that <laughs> yeah, yeah. opportunity. So Marty saw me standing there. So he goes back, did you get to talk to him? I go, no, he goes, so he went back to the dressing room, brought Rickles out to talk to me. Yeah. And we stood in the hallway and we talked for like a half hour. And this is, you know, this is. Me, my dad, you know, kind of like he was the, yeah. the guy that helped sure. bond us. Yeah. But, of course, at the end of the, the thing, his his wrangler came yeah. by yeah. and kind of, you know, grabbed his arm. Yeah. And he goes, uh, did you get the hangers? <laughs> he goes, no, I didn't get the hangers. And I'm like, what? The? And he looks at me and goes, I'm a Jew on a cheap show. I got to take everything. <laughs> and he went and took the wooden hangers out of the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. I worked with uh, Michael Lerner. You know Michael Lerner, the actor? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he was on my TV show. And literally, he, he was on like one episode of the TV show. And he's like, can I have the robe? And I'm like, I don't, no, it's, it's wardrobe. He's like, can I have the... He, we were on a set uh, in, a, in a, a condo that we were shooting. And it's like, what about these plants? Can I take the plants? No, you can't take any. What is wrong with you? <laughs> so when do you start with the... I mean, when do you start doing the comedy? Would I do stand-up? Yeah, the first time. Like, what, it was it in, in the Connecticut? Yes, it was... Uh, this was like 76, 77. Yeah. Um, actually, I started in high school. It was the first time I did it in my, my uh, junior year, the, the talent night. Yeah. And I was the guy in the classroom that was just fucking throwing shit out there and making the room laugh. It was like a white hot room. Sometimes I would leave a classroom and I'd have that like post showbiz, like I did a set. Yeah. And it was so the, the teachers hated you. They actually liked me because I wasn't all that disruptive. I would right. pick my spots and it would be a laugh. It'd be stupid shit. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, excuse me. I have a question. When was the War of eighteen twelve? You know that. <laughs> you know. But when you're yeah, yeah. kids in a classroom, that's great. That's and, a pretty good one. Um, so the teacher actually like and I, came to me and said, "You're going to do the show, right?" And I'm like, uh, "Am I going to?" In front of my whole school, I yeah. do stand up for the first time, yeah. and my mom, because you know, I'm really a quiet person, my mom like didn't even bring anybody to the show because she thought it would, it would be, be terrible, and uh, <laughs> didn't want you to be embarrassed in front of more people. And in yeah, it's and it's the entire school. I'm, yeah. I'm supposed to be funny, yeah. and man, I just did it. I just went for it. You know? By yourself? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it went great. Yeah, it went great. It felt like you know I got off it, it as. Over the years of doing sets, it was that same feeling of, oh, shit. Were, do, were you doing your jokes? No. Uh, yes and no. Yeah. Uh, half of it was Freddie Prince. <laughs> wow. What the interesting choice. I, I remember- So love, you did a lot of Puerto Rican jokes? Uh, there was. I was like, you know, <laughs> hey, there's there's no Puerto Rican astronauts all the way to the moon, blow the horn, play the radio, you know. But coming out of you is a little different, right? I know. I, I, <laughs> I don't know how I got away with it. Yeah. Uh, different time. It, it makes no sense not to even say it, but- <laughs> Uh, I remember writing my first few jokes. Uh, yeah. I went to a vocational high school, learned electronics because it was I was it was determined that I was not college material. So, really? So you're ready to set up shop in Waterbury, fixing yeah, yeah. audio yeah. equipment and visual or and TVs? Yeah. Um, so one of the first jokes was my uh, my parents wanted me to go to a vocational high school yeah. so they'd know what kind of work I'd be out of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for a 16-year-old kid, that's not, that's all right. Um, and it's, I, it's so funny you just made the face again. That was the one I always made you do. Like the burl the, face. The burl take. <laughs> Fucking Bill Hicks loved that so much. Like, he would he would want me to come to lunch with him just yeah. to do the burl face. When which, he was living in New York for 10 minutes? Yeah, on the west side. It was great. Yeah, I uh, yeah, the burl face was great. I remember being, uh, it was one of those things where you just, I'd see you and you'd request it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you'd be like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was just a very brief impression. But did you meet him? Did you meet? Well, first, I saw him a bunch of times. Is that where you picked up the take? Yeah, the they did the take. Yeah. And I loved the rhythm of his. I saw him at some event, and there yeah. was a guy in a plaid jacket walking in the background. And without missing a beat, like out of the corner of his eyes, he goes, you can sit down. We saw the jacket. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and does the face. And I just love that yeah. stuff. And I was in uh, the Catskill Mountains. <laughs> He's so funny. I, I, I went to see, I think it was Max Alexander and Paul Provenza mm. on the show. Uh, this was so long ago, but Burl was at another place. Yeah. And uh, 
I think Max knew him, or I forget who. So we, yeah. we go over there. We go in the dressing room, yeah. and Burl's in there getting dressed. Yeah. He's kind of behind this this curtain uh-huh. between the... And he... Most people who know Burl know that he has a giant cock. That's what I've always heard, yeah. Yeah. Not that I thought much about it, yeah. but uh, he likes to show it off because he uh, was in his boxer shorts, yeah. and he pulls the curtain back. Yeah. And he just an excuse of like, can you hand me that hairbrush yeah. just so he can step out enough yeah. to where his cock is hanging out of the side of his shorts yeah. and about near the knee. Come on. Yeah. It was yeah. about near the knee. Yeah. That seems unusable. Uh, I don't, I couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> but I mean, mine's an innie. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I'm not sure. I don't remember if I was shocked or I, it's that thing where you pretend you're he does it all i didn't know yeah, what to do right but but it, you have that experience it's it burned in my brain sure well yeah. i mean and i guess that was the intention to carry the myth yes to continue the story of milton burl's cock it's all true it, it, read the book <laughs> anyway so this kind of again it's like all the green lights are going man so but you, you didn't need to take a job as a electrician ever no i i worked in multiple tv repair shops you did yeah as a, what, like TV before repair. you were 20? Yeah, yeah, fixing TVs. Um, in fact, I would, my cousin would have his truck and we'd drive around to the TV repair shops and we'd get the, the TVs out yeah. of like the dumpster. Yeah. I'd take them home and like Frankenstein TVs together. and Just like for that. fun? Yeah. And. Uh, Can you, how, how, you still got chops as an electrician? I, I have some chops, but I don't have the tools. Okay. Yeah. I make my wife crazy because there's this YouTube channel I watch of yeah. this guy that fixes old TVs. Yeah. And it's just this boring, like he opens up the schematics yeah. and puts the test thing to yeah. the thing. And and for you, it's nostalgic. Yeah. Um, but out of high school, and it's funny because, again, it's I was considered not college material. And yeah. I was, so I uh, go to this uh, job interview that was sort of an offshoot of uh, NASA in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh-huh. And it, they they build airplane equipment and and dials and shit like that. It's and, ambitious. And I go, I'm gonna I'm gonna just show up and I get, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm not, you know, the idea of actually going to New York City. I'm yeah. kind of like it's fading on me. Yeah. And, and I go, I've I've went to school for this. Let me. And they in the interview, it's like it's going well. I got my dad's nice shoes on. Yeah. Got, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, they give me a test. They give yeah. me an electronics math test. And give me a calculator. This is the job interview. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't I just leave now, you know? <laughs> and I take the test, and then I'm waiting. Can you hang out? And we'll, yeah. we'll go through this. And then I notice in the back, they have the rocket dying division. Yeah. yeah. And I'm talking to a guy there, and I go, so what's that? And they go, that's what they work on the space shuttle there. And I go, you know, you work here a few years, some people move on up to the. Yeah. And the guy came out with my test result, and he goes, well, if you're interested, we want to start you in the rocket dying division working on that space shuttle. I'm like, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> That's, so you, 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 you nailed the test. It was, it was, you know. Did you do it? I did it for, I, I've, you know what? It was that point in a lot of people. So wait, is the challenge your fault? No, the, <laughs> the one where the tiles fell off. Oh. <laughs> that was me. Well, that's, um, that's a lesser transgression, I think. 
what was interesting, though, because I think a lot of people hit this point in their life where, where you have this opportunity presented to you, this life, this career opportunity. And I still had my high school girlfriend yeah. and everything was kind of great. So it's like close look, by. I should I, I can have a great career working for NASA. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe I'll get married. But, mm-hmm. you know, or like the 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 comedy horror kept screaming yeah. in my head. Yeah. Like but it's craziness. You can't. Yeah. Uh, so I stayed there like a year, uh, but then I started showing up, and this is way before the comedy boom. I would just walk into a bar. I'm still 17 or whatever, and if there was a band, I'd go to the, I'd find the manager and go, when they have a break, can I just go up and tell jokes? And they're like, well, you know, no. This is when before every building had a yeah, you know, microphone. Yeah, and then that's how I did. I would just show up at bars and just go and do it. You know, that seems tough. Yeah, but. I love stand up so much. I felt like it doesn't matter. I'm I'm doing it. I'm, did you I'm, do well? Sometimes, I guess. Uh, yeah, I did well. I did well. I mean, it was uh, as far as I can remember. I did yeah, well. yeah. In, in fact, what happened was um, I found a jazz club in my hometown yeah. somehow, and they were so open to stand up and something different and something weird that became my room. Yeah, and the when I came in one night, there was this Italian singer, kind of like lighting up the room, dancing around, and, yeah. you know, he's kind of this Louis Prima guy. Yeah. And then he watched my set and said, you know, there's these comedy clubs in New York. And I go, yeah, I know about them. And he says, you should get in there. I think you're ready. And I'm like, who's this guy? And it was, uh, remember Nick Apollo from the Woody Allen movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. He was from my hometown and, you, and played all these same little, you know. He did what he did in the movie. Yeah. In, uh, well, it was. Broadway uh, Danny Rose. Broadway no. Danny Rose. Yeah, Broadway yeah, Danny Rose. It was Broadway Danny Rose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. And so that was that was enough to get you out of NASA? Got me out of NASA. I think what got me out of NASA was my sister found an ad in the paper. The Harvard Civic Center, which had the roof had just collapsed. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but the, the roof fell in, but there was like a performance area right outside the thing. So anyway, they were having a benefit night and it was a a a comedy night. Yeah. And it was a competition. Yeah. And the prize was you get to audition at the Improv in New York. I'm like, holy shit, this is my way in. Yeah, and uh, it was hosted by David Fry. Yeah, talk about old timer. And that guy, David Fry, even you know, even at that point, he was doing it for so long. He just, you know, there was just a money grab. He had like yeah. the car waiting outside the door. He just like yeah, spewed out his twelve minutes and then hightailed it out of there. But I mean, that was fine. Anyway, there was ten or twelve of us, and I had the props then, and I don't know what the like I was doing, but uh, I almost had enough experience where it paid off, and I won the night. So I got a limo and dinner in New York City and got to audition at the Improv. For Silver. Silver was not there yet. Oh. Uh, and Bud was gone, and it was a weird middle point. Was it Was it Chris Albert? Albrecht was Albrecht? there, and some guy, Steve, yeah. who I didn't know and haven't seen since wow so that like so it was in between bud and silver i didn't realize there was an in between it was literally like it was just a short window of time because first of all what was fun is there was a saturday night yeah they're putting me on prime time yeah middle of the show so the audience is white hot yeah and it just went great so steve this guy said you come and hang out yeah of course i live in connecticut you know sure two hours away but yeah Still, it's like, okay, I'm, I have this opportunity. And you did it? I eventually moved out into New York City. How was that for your parents? Um, 
My dad loved it. Yeah, he did. He so started, he, had, he had seen you work a few times, I imagine. Yeah. And, uh, he, and you were doing his style, right? Um, what was my style? Uh, I did a lot of sound effects. Okay. Um, oh, there was a thing about the dogs always would attack our garbage pails at night. It got to the point we opened like a dog restaurant. You know, how many two by the bush? We got something by the can open. You know, whatever that. Uh, <laughs> two by the bush. <laughs> uh, the diners, the diners in uh, Waterbury. You know, the old heavy ladies with the big breasts. They yeah. come to your table. They got food stains on there. You know. Yeah. And what would you like? And I point to her breast. Well, the tuna looks great. You know. The <laughs> yeah. Bad yeah. place. Instead of lobsters in the tank, there were fish sticks uh -huh. floating around. Yeah. You know? But that was more of like the influence of liking. Because uh, I moved on to like Leno and and Letterman and all those guys before they were even famous. Yeah. Uh, and Freddie Prinze and you know that that seventies you know such West a Coast. small window with Freddie. Yeah. But, were, but I can't like I don't remember seeing him uh, when when and I was a kid. I don't remember seeing him. <sighs> well, I think he, he was there for me in an interesting time because. There was the Mike Douglas show. Yeah. And the, they, the semicircle. Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, the the guest host would be there for a week, and it was Freddie Prinze. This time, Freddie Prinze each night would kind of introduce something he was doing in his life. And yeah. We were about the same age. And, yeah. You know, so it'd be like, uh, he would show the improv. Like, you know, you, I got to see the improv on camera and some of the comedians he did like- So he was in New York still? Yeah. Oh. Um, he might have been living here, but yeah. he- in fact, it may have been the L.A. club. I don't remember. But mm -hmm. uh, so he talked about stand-up and how much fun that was. And then they showed outtakes from Chico and the Man. And they go, this guy just lives a fun life. Every yeah. day, look, they're just laughing. Yeah. He's playing the drums. I play the drums, too. With like, this is like, it's. Right. It, you Kismet. Know. Yeah. And then he uh, brought up, uh, he introduced a comedian friend of his. Yeah. Uh, who was exactly my age. And. He was okay, but was he was he he was sort of like wasn't that great? So I felt like, well, if he can do it, I can. Was it Bursky? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say, but even as you know, at that age, I was able to recognize like, well, then why not me? <laughs> yeah, I want to. He's you're gonna get a call now. Um, why would you say that? Bursky is great, by the way, and he's an interesting character, and yeah. it was fun for me for a minute to kind of go for full circle with that because I ran into him at a Walgreens or yeah. something, and I told him who I was, and yeah. I kind of said, you know, without saying thanks yeah. to you, I, I, you're one of the reasons I, you know. <laughs> you didn't tell him the whole story. No, yeah. but uh, I guess you'll hear it now. I don't yeah, know. maybe. But, you know, that's, that's me. So, that's all right, so you moved down to New York. Now, what is, what year is that? 1979. Oh, so you're there, like, there's still a lot of big hitters around from the old, from the 70s. Yeah. Before they all split. Who was there? Uh, I was mostly at the improv, so it was, remember Mark Wiener? Yeah, of course. Mark Schiff? I me neither one of them would work on Saturday. Uh-huh. You, you named the two Orthodox yeah. Jews. Uh, Piscopo was like the MC most of the time. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Hirsch? Yeah, I remember him. Bob Shaw was there. Bob... Bob, Michael Patrick King, and I wrote on the, the Caroline's thing together. Okay. Um, Michael Patrick King. See, I never saw him do stand-up. I don't think a lot of people know he did. 
It was brief. Yeah. He started in a group and then had a partner. Then there was just two of them. Yeah. And, um, uh, Andy Kaufman was there. Was he still? He came back. Yeah. This was uh, around the wrestling time. Okay. And he kind of befriended me. Oh, really? Um, I got to referee some wrestling matches on that, that little tiny stage at the improv. So tiny. In the corner. It was, I mean, it was... It was scary because it was really a woman, a real woman from the audience. It yeah. wasn't set up. Yeah. And he would flip her around on that little stage, yeah. you know, and it's like, I felt like I had some responsibility because I was the, the, the quote unquote, yeah. you know, referee. Yeah. And the women would get so worked up and they would just crowd the stage. It was yeah. like a, a thunderdome. Huh. They would pile on top of each other because he's, you know, you should be home cooking and cleaning and doing the ironing. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then uh, I was just looking for the right moment, moment to call it at those times. You know, I just, yeah, you know. Before it got too crazy? And then, then the women, you know, would want to kill him. Yeah. And then they would go up and to him at the bar and, and want to fuck him. <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's, <laughs> was he, but he was a star already. Yes, he was a star. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got to play drums for his Elvis a few times. That really? Was fantastic. It was great. And what, as a guy, what was he like? Uh, he stayed in character all the time, but I felt kind Which of. Which character? The heel, the he, wrestler character. The wrestler, uh, he had the 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 neck brace on, just in the yeah. bar, yeah, and going on stage. Yeah. And I feel kind of privileged because he confided in me a few times. And yeah, that's like you know about what. Like he went on Letterman. Uh, he was talking about on the show. He, he was unshaven and sniveling, and yeah. talking about how he got fired from Taxi. Yeah, and uh, and he's like, if you have any money, you know, asking the audience, <laughs> you know. You, can, you know, and they're throwing yeah. change at him, you know, and and he, he got worked up and security had to pull him out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then I saw him the next night and he's like, they really thought I, I needed money. They, you know. Yeah. And to me, I felt this was like yeah. a privileged moment. Yeah. It's like, you know? uh, it's like learning the trick. Yeah. The magician telling you the trick. He yeah. was so excited, though. Yeah. But so was uh, Larry David gone? He was Gone already doing like Fridays, yeah. but then he came back eventually yeah. while I was still there. Were you doing catch or just the improv? Rarely did catch. It was mostly improv, all the kind of West Side. It actually got to the point. What, like a, a West Side? Okay, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I remember doing 11 shows in one night. At the improv? At, just on the West Side. Like what were the other? So like, this was the days of like stand-up New York yeah. on the uh, upper what, yeah. 70s and just going straight down like 9th Avenue. Then you'd, I'd hit the improv. Caroline's was on 8th at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And then going to the village yeah. to the comedy cellar. Yeah. I was also doing the bottom line. Right. I was like the regular opening act for people there. Oh, Yeah. Uh, Village Gate was doing comedy. The Raffy at the Gate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Gate was amazing. Kind of was. I like I was in the kitchen waiting to go on, and there, yeah. there was this little door. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I hear like music. Yeah, coming out of the door, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, and I open the door, and it's like wooden spiral staircase that goes down into a basement, and the music's getting louder. Yeah, and it was Bo Diddley in this little dark cavernous basement with yeah. like 20 people just like playing and going. Really? Yeah, it's like, well, I stepped into this little magical... Yeah, I think he lived there for a while in New York. <laughs> in the basement? <laughs> yeah, because I ran into him. I had met, like, well, he was at a bar. I don't remember what the hell, I, I was drunk. But it was when I was still in college and I remember meeting Bo Diddley uh, in New York. So I wonder if he was there for a while. Yeah, the gate was kind of a wild place. There was like three or four rooms there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I, I loved all of it, even the, all the insanity of it all. It was just great. Was Belzer still around? Uh, he was around. Yeah. Uh, not that much. He, I mean, he, he, was, he was mostly at uh, Catch. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was great to me when I first moved out there, Yeah, I was, I was sleeping in shifts because I had a day job. You know, I, I would come home from work, sleep from like 6 to 10. What were you doing, electronics? I worked at a AV repair shop. Yeah. And uh, part of my job, and again, I'm 20, 21, yeah. is to go to Times Square. This is, again, 1980. The yeah. Porn District, 42nd yeah. Street. Yeah. And do the maintenance on the projection equipment. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, man, uh, so, you know, this... 19-year-old kid, whatever, just off the bus from Connecticut, yeah. and I'm thrown into the underbelly of Manhattan, and you go into these places, and each one is just a Scorsese movie. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you got the... First of all, uh, uh, Gotti had his hand in, in those porn theaters yeah. back then, but yeah. he did a deal with the Sri Lankan mob because uh, Gotti knew, like, the home video stuff was coming in. Yeah. So, like, guys didn't have to leave the house to jerk off. Yeah. <laughs> So he knew, like, the, they were going downhill. So yeah. I had to deal with those Sri Lankan guys that were just angry because they had been ripped off. Yeah. Because I go in my little toolbox, you know, in these those theaters. And first of all, the projectors were those 16 millimeter sure. <laughs> like, projectors from high school. Like you Bell know. and Howell. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm there, people there at, at, at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting to get the rocks off and they're waiting on you yeah. to fix the machine. And you go in and there's like this manager guy with like a gimp hand and a dead eye yeah. you know and it's <laughs> yeah you know i'm there with my little toolbox yeah. and then when the projector goes off yeah then the live show starts oh yeah that's uh, a lot that is rough i mean yeah and i'm you know i'm cleaning the gates but i'm looking at the through the little window yeah and just people fucking on stage exactly yeah well, first of all, these strippers came out. Like, woman comes out. Yeah. By the way, the audience, I mean, it's 11.30. is like a degenerate sleeping and, yeah. and you know, four, four guys from Jersey, like, curious. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, and it was always a Wall Street guy. One guy in a suit. Suit, briefcase. Yeah. You know, this is his lunch break. Yeah. Um, but I distinctly remember a stripper coming out in a bikini, right? Yeah. And takes off the top, hands it behind the curtain. Yeah. Slips off the bottom, yeah. hands it behind the curtain and does her thing, comes off. And she was handing the bikini off to the next stripper. So she's wearing the same bikini. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And then, like, a bug guy spraying the stage and, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, the, then came the full nude, yeah. you know, sex ballet. Yeah. And I'm, you know. For, like, five people. Yeah. You think an open mic's tough. You think doing it. I mean, I, it's kind of astounding. Ugh. They'd roll out this dirty mattress. And I remember... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, the the woman naked. Yeah. Uh, the yeah they were both naked and and the guy laying on his back. Yeah. And she's you know putting her stuff on his face, bopping up and down to the song. I'm sitting on top of the world, sitting on top of the. <laughs> <laughs> and you're trying to focus on the, uh, the the projector. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it affected me so much. Like that was the payoff from your childhood experience. That's, that, yeah. that, that's where the go-go girl. That's that right. You, it came full you, circle. You, you landed, yeah. Um, but I remember one time the girl yeah. in the sex act was young, looked healthy, yeah. you know, alabaster skin. Sure. And I thought for a moment, like, maybe she just took a bad turn. Right. You know, and for a moment in my head, I thought, maybe I can save her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you talk to her? No. Uh 
because somebody had talked to the dancers and the Sri Lankan guy went crazy. On, yeah. You know, I'm like, but it inspired me so much that I wrote a pilot about it, just that time. And then like the idea of uh, what happened if that kid did take this kind of crazy girl on and try to bring her, you know, this, yeah. this feral yeah. girl and see if he can wrangle her, you know? Well, it's, uh, and, and also it's not something that hasn't been done by many comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> many people have tried that. <laughs> it doesn't generally end well. No, no. So, but you're there, because I don't get there in, really in earnest. Like, you know, Silver passed me at the improv when it was sort of, you know, dying, I think. It was probably 89 when I got to New York. <sighs> yeah. Uh, to to really, when I moved there. And it was like the only club, that in the Boston, that would let me work. So I was there, you know, a lot. And I couldn't really work at the cellar for years. But by then, you're already like 10 years in, but you're still there. I know. And so all the writing that you guys started, because it seems like everybody started writing on those basic cable shows, like Louie. And, you know, I, I know that like Cohen was involved. And then there was that whole sort of scene of us. But I guess you were a little older, like, because there's a picture in the book at Mark Cohen's apartment. And I couldn't believe there wasn't a bong on the table. I said, how did they get the one picture of that apartment that wasn't a bong on that t- table? Um, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> what was interesting is that there would be a thing going on at Cohen's almost every single night at his apartment after the gigs. So, right. Well, him and Attell were best friends, and he was, I guess Attell was dating Sarah first, and, and Louie was around. There's a picture of Joe Mulligan in there, who I haven't seen in a million years. What yeah. happened to that guy? Joe is uh, – I haven't really talked to him. I just yeah. kind of see what's going on on, uh, you know, on social media. Yeah. But he has a son who is a successful comic actor. Oh, really? He's done sketches on when Conan was on and okay. stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, Still in the game kind of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the, So your first gig was writing for Caroline's? I think my first paying gig, yeah. I was at the launch of Comedy Central. Oh, when it was uh, Comedy um, Channel? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So was that with the like the Higgins Boys and Gruber? Who was there? Uh, yeah, Higgins Boys. Uh, Rich Hall was there for a short time. Right. Uh, yeah. Rachel Sweet. And that was like after it was like it was Ha for a second. No, Ha was there at the same time. Okay, and then it all became Comedy Central, and it was half. It was comedy. It was HBO Downtown Productions mm-hmm. and Viacom, I guess, partnered in that because I I hosted the last version of Short Attention Span Theater. Uh-huh. In 92. And was it still Comedy Channel or Comedy Central? No, it was Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And it was HBO Downtown, which had that you know makeshift studio and down on like 23rd and uh, maybe 6th. I can't remember. Was it that circular thing where the other offices were kind of on the outer? Yes. Ri- yeah, yeah. Um, right. And it was politically incorrect, stand-up, stand-up, mm-hmm. Um and short attention span theater. I think the Higgins boys and Gruber were there because mm-hmm. their props were still around. Uh-huh. And, and a lot of coffee and cigarette butts. Yeah. I mean, there was a, I, I ended up with a guitar that was a prop on the Higgins boys and Gruber because they were cleaning out the basement over there. And uh, I was like, what's going to happen to that? I'll take it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but so, okay. So you were there at the beginning of that. Uh, there was Tommy Sledge. Yep. You know, Tommy Sledge. With the, with the private eye bit? Yeah. So he talked in 1940s private eye. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Gordetsky hired me there. Eddie was the head writer. Eddie is, uh, he, he is synonymous with television comedy. I, he came up the other day. I was talking about Eddie Gordetsky. Uh, yeah. I see Eddie like once a week. With you do? Cigars. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I've he came to my house years ago with Elvis Costello. He's a big music guy, right? Mm -hmm. But he he said he didn't want to do the show. Oh, he. It seems like he would have a lot to talk about, but I guess he doesn't want. He likes cigars and uh, music, and apparently uh, eyeglasses. I guess. Yeah. Um, my but writing for Sledge, the like nobody knew what they were doing, especially me, because it, yeah. it was my first writing job. So. What was his show? Oh, Inside the Comic Mind was there too, right? With Alan King? Yep. Yeah. Uh, they kind of used the MTV VH1 model. They right. thought the comics could host yeah. uh, clips from, famous clips from big comic Well, that's movies. what I end up doing. Yeah. Um, but their idea was each day the wraparound should tell a full story. So okay. today Sledge thinks somebody robbed something from the cafeteria. Right. You know. Oh, I see. So that was the, a thread. Yeah. Yeah. But what I didn't realize, like, I had to write 36 segments a day by myself. Yeah. And I thought I've never written before, so I guess if they tell me I should be able to do this, yeah. like, I should do it. Yeah. So it it became if I stopped writing for 10 minutes, I just would never catch up. I mean, I'm in the cab That's ride. That's crazy. Riding. I'm taking a shit. I'm riding. I'm at the diner. For, 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 the, for the whole spectrum of those transition people yeah for the, for writing those those interstitial pieces for Tommy Sledge just for, for Tommy yeah but who else was doing that interstitials uh Higgins Boyce was kind of the same thing they, but they I thought they had sort of a show no yeah but no they, they might have done a little bit more of like little kind of sketches but it was throughout. all to service the clips right. the free promotional clips yeah so it was driven by you know, paying for nothing yeah 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 well, that that must have been like I had a fight to get a writer. That John Groff was my my writer. Yeah. I was his first writing job, because they just wanted me to throw the promotional clips, and, and it wasn't the same show. It, you know, Robert Small had made it into this weird kind of this idea it was the comedy vault in the basement of Comedy Central, uh -huh. and they had they put put a writer with me, but he wasn't writing jokes, and I was I freaked out because I barely wanted the job anyways. And I was a real pain in the ass, but I, I made them pull Groff in to write real bits for me. Uh, but, I, I mean, he went on to be the head writer of Conan, and, and I think this kind of training, like, it must have been amazing. Right, because I learned how to write fast. Yeah. I learned how to write without putting all the editors on in my head. And yeah. for better or worse, just Sledge was not good at improvising. And yeah. So every word mattered, and he was talking in that four days lingo. Yeah. And I was like... Where Havy had his show too, yeah, and Havy no. was able to, you know, you give him a rubber band and he can do six minutes. On yeah, what's right, funny, sure. you know, yeah, and that was the uh, the audience of one talk show. Yeah, was it night after night? Yeah, that yeah. was called. Yeah, and by the way, audience one was my idea. It was <laughs> for him. Yeah, because <laughs> you know you weren't going to get audiences because I Leifer also had a VH1 show separate from this called yeah. From My Bedroom or something. Oh, really? And it was uh, wraparounds for. Uh, was it comedy or just music? I don't know, but it was her yeah. in her bedroom. And then I said, let's have two people as an audience, you know, just so you'll have someone to bounce off. Yeah. So I just brought that to. Oh, that was you. Yeah. That was a, that was a big hook. Mm. So then what happens? So how does the, like, you're still doing stand up, but like that, I think that's important, like what you're saying, because I don't talk to, yeah, I talk to writers, but I mean, but you were a guy around, because by the time I got to the cellar, you were still doing sets. Right? Yeah. And and that was like, you know, I guess she passed me. Uh, it took a long time. I had to do an age. I, you, you were probably gone already. I don't think she let me work there until she saw my HBO half hour. That must have been like 95. Yeah. They, the seller really was about they wanted you to kill. 
You yeah. know, you couldn't fuck around. Yeah. Like, the improv, to me, was always a comedy gym. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. just try yeah. stuff. And, yeah. Um, but I, I kind of—the problem was, too, I was having so much fun that, you know— I go to LA and fuck up my life. I, right. You know, it was I, I was becoming a, a, a big fish in a small pond. But right. I knew I wanted to write, and yeah. I just started working on that. And but what were the other things you were involved with in New York? You get limited, right? You must have run the gamut of, uh, of writing jobs. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I started writing half-hour scripts and just teaching myself how to do it. You know. But you knew you. Yeah, but that moment I think is very important because I I know I always talk about it with comics. That a lot of the guys I start with knew they had the, you know, the, like, I don't know what, they weren't delusional. They, they knew they had a skill, but they weren't going to be George Carlin. Right. So, like, what else do you do with that? Yeah. And that's the rest of show business. Yeah, yeah. Only an idiot commits to comedy for a life. Yeah. Stand up. Yeah. I did. <laughs> no, but uh, first of all, obviously landed in fantastic Yeah, in, in my mid-40s. But yeah, it's a long well, road. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, still, that's you. Sure, you're you're enjoying it because I I kind of sort of remember a time in your life, and like ran into you like yeah. at the sunset thing yeah. across from the the laugh factory, and you were kind of in a place like I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, you were looking and trying to find, and I yeah, and that's why I always think about you because you you found it, man, and the gears came together, and that's yeah. that's always a great thing because it it doesn't happen a lot, you know. No, dude, it's scary, man. Yeah. Especially when you get to a certain age and you see the wreckage. Yeah. Because, like, you know, I you know, looking down the 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 barrel of a B room headliner with who doesn't sell tickets. Yeah. Like you know, but everybody knows in the business. It was like it's gnarly, dude. It was like it was tough. But like, but but again, I'm a little dramatic. I mean, I still get into that place where I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, I remember I had this emotional moment. Yeah, I had moved to L.A. Yeah, I had my first uh, sitcom writing job. On um, what? Uh, it was a show called The Boys. Alan Zweibel created yeah. it because what what happened in New York? I was teaching myself to write. And, yeah, and the two shows, the two models. Yeah, I went off of were the New Bob Newhart Vermont show. Yep, and it's Gary Shandling show. Yeah, before Larry Sanders. Yep. And I just kept writing episodes. I, and I do the same thing I did when I was a kid. I'd record it, listen to the show. Listen Not on to a cassette, though, now. You use VHS, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> no, I put it in a cassette because I would walk around and listen oh, really? to it without, oh, without just so you watching hear the jokes. it. And hear the rhythm of yeah. the characters yeah. and how they talk. Oh, wow. Yeah. And just try to get it into my DNA. Yeah. And... Uh, and during this time, I actually ended up doing freelance working on Weekend Update at SNL for Dennis. Yeah. And because he was taking freelance jokes. But because of that, I got to hang out at SNL like all the time. Yeah. Which was kind of a fun way to go in because it's stress free and you just get to watch how it happens and see how it all comes together. Yeah. And the time I was there, I can tell like this is going to be part of my life. This is where I'm going to end up where this shit is going on. Shows yeah. are being made and yeah. behind the scenes and all that stuff. Um, and I ran into Alan Zweibel there. And uh, I told him how much, how, because I, I was always a fan of Allen's because he wrote for those Catskill guys. Yeah. He had this great piece in the Atlantic back then of trying to get a Catskill comic guy to understand why these jokes are funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he was impressed that I remembered that. Yeah. And he's just like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I've been writing him, teach myself half hours. Yeah. And what do you have? And he goes, I said, I, and Zwei Bell was co creator of It's Gary Shelling Show. Yeah. And I go, well, I wrote two specs of this thing. He goes, send me your best one. 
And I'm like, I'm not expecting anything. Yeah. And then he calls me like a week later. He goes, I want to set you up with my manager. Yeah. And I met with the manager and he says, let's do a deal and you'll be in business with Alan. And I thought I can go to, it's Gary Shandling's show. Yeah. But he had a show in between the seasons called yeah. uh, The Boys. Yeah. And The Boys was about the Friars Club. Okay. And my first job, I come to LA writing for this show yeah. and it's, Norman Fell, Norm Crosby, <laughs> yeah. Jackie Gale, yeah. you know, all these altacacas sitting yeah. at uh, the table. That's the show. But yeah. that's what brought me to New York City. Oh, my God. How was Jackie Gale? <laughs> Jackie Gale was uh, nuts in a great way. Yeah. Uh, Norm Crosby thought I, like, created the show so he would show up all the time and give me cigars and <laughs> tell me jokes. And, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but I was still—I started to do stand-up at the L.A. Improv at this right. time, okay. kind of at night because— the thing about a comedy writer's room, it's just more internal and it's, you know, I'm used to stand-up. You do say something funny and there's a response. Yeah. Comedy room, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, it's good. We could try that. You know? yeah. And it's like, <laughs> so what does that mean? It's good. You know? Yeah. So I was trying to stay in the stand-up loop just to feel the, you yeah. know. The juice. And there was this one night. And I was getting kind of good spots at first, but then there was a one night, it's like getting late, and yeah. you're starting to get that feeling like you're at the airport waiting, and then like one of the Wayne's brothers show up, and he's going to yeah. do an hour, and yeah. I'm like, and then I get on, it's, you know, whatever, 1130, there's yeah. that 11 people maybe in the audience. Yeah. So I, I did what I do in New York, which is do some of the jokes you know that works, think of some stuff that you might be funny, or a joke you're working, yeah. just kind of play, do sure. the gym thing. Yeah. This is hard to explain, but I, I got off stage, yeah. and the guy that ran the lights or the sound kind of came out of the shadows. I don't know who it is. Yeah. And he kind of like looks at me like I'm going to commit suicide or something. Yeah. And he's like patting me on the back. And he's like, look, you know, don't worry. You do it a few years. <laughs> you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I, I don't believe in this kind of sort of internal yeah. stuff, but right. I saw, I literally saw the stand-up comic person in me like leave my body. Like yeah. a, like a like a ghost like yeah. and just kind of flew out through the roof of the club yeah and I didn't just stand up again after that really yeah it just hit me like but you didn't feel that way on stage no not at all I didn't it's like well, this is what I do yeah I, I, it's I think it told me like if you want to do stand up in L A you yeah. you're, you're, just, you're starting over interesting yeah and I I, I I've done it for ten years and yeah. like, I'm gonna start over right you know right so it was that that line of like no no nah, I'm a writer no I'm just right. a writer you know and that was it yeah except uh, my sons have never seen me do stand up right uh, a couple years ago yeah uh, Wendy Lieben has her room uh, at uh, at Vitello's yeah and I said uh, my sons got to see me you know and they brought all their friends mm. and luckily it was just a great hot room yeah and I. You know, it's doing stand-up where it, you, it's not that important. Right. You're just so loose. Yeah. You're just having fun. You know, like if I had that attitude when I was doing stand-up, yeah. I don't know. I could Maybe I could have been inclined. Maybe. You know. But it's so funny that because like you said that like some people say like, you know, fortunately I got sober before my son's. I ever saw me drunk. I thought it was going. Like, yeah, but they saw you and you did good. It went, it went great. I mean, they... Uh, I, I felt really happy how their their friends were screaming, yeah. laughing, and, you know, it was just the right thing to— Oh, great. I almost want to do it again just so they can see me bomb to see what happens when— Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't get too excited. See, there's another yeah, side yeah. to this. Yeah. So so you you pretty much, from the Zweibel show, just continued writing pretty steadily. 
Yes, I've been lucky. Uh, what were some of the shows? Uh, my favorite jobs were Futurama. I was yeah. there for six, seven seasons. Got an Emmy? Uh, I got an Emmy, nominated like six, seven times or something. Yeah. Uh, one of my latest favorite jobs is working for the Trailer Park Boys. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they're up in Canada. They're in yeah. Halifax. Yeah. And their show's been on for like 20 years. Yeah. And they brought me in to say, can you make this into an animated show? And I sat down. I go, here's how you do it. And they say, all right, come work for us. Yeah. And I would spend months in Halifax, which yeah. was just nice. They treated me like a king, yeah. you know, two-bedroom suite hotel yeah. and a giant per diem and yeah. first class and all nice. that stuff. And that's a case of, like, they're, you know, in the middle of Canada, there's no producers, no yeah. executives, no notes, and they know their characters. And it was just about sitting down, writing the show, yeah. and no bullshit, and, yeah. you know. But you never got on SNL, huh? No, I. Uh, it's funny. I uh, when I was a kid and yeah. and won this Hartford, Connecticut comedy yeah. contest that got you the audition at the Improv, and then I passed at the Improv. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm king. I must be fantastic. Yeah. So I wrote a letter to uh, Saturday Night Live on your mother's typewriter again. Yes. <laughs> I said, you know, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Yeah. And then I was joke, you know, you should consider me. Look, here's a, here's a dollar. Yeah. I don't want to say where this should go, but I'm just saying you should yeah. bring me in. Yeah. And I got a uh, form letter, a rejection form letter. Yeah. But again, it's like they actually heard me. You know. You know. It right. Was, uh, again, I'm at this point. I'm still living at home, and you yeah. Know, um, did but you, I, I never wanted to really. Did I? There was a minute where I wanted to write on the show, but I, I kind of knew the pressure of that after the Comedy Central thing. And, yeah, you know, right. And did you end up writing specifically for stand-ups ever again? Uh, no, no. no? Um, huh. The closest thing was I worked with Dana Gould on his uh, Doctor Z show. Yeah, yeah. On the it was that podcast. It's the uh, uh, Doctor Zayas. Yeah, yeah. It, um, was it on TV? Yeah, it's it's on YouTube, and so he's oh, in okay. full costume. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Dana is fantastic because yeah, he's great. Like just backstage, you can throw a couple of comedy fragments and shit out to him. Yeah, and then he'll go on camera like he's been doing it for two years. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, he he is one of the greats, the unsung greats, I think, because yeah. he can do it all. Like he's just you know voices, movements. You know, he's very uh, heady. You know, like he's smart. He can riff. He's great. Yeah. He's great. It's, it's always great to see him. Yeah, he's got a definite point of view. Sure, ways. sure. And, it, like, I think that he's got some real courage in terms of personal darkness to yeah. kind of push the envelope on that. Yeah. It, it was kind of fun to work with him, too, because, like you, I felt like I've known you forever, but yet I don't right. know you. But yeah, so, yeah. To actually sit down with Dana and, and figure shit out. But don't you feel that way with a lot of us? I mean, it's so, like the, there's a real sense of community. Like, you know, even back then when you were around New York and like Cohen's apartment and stuff, I wasn't completely in the loop. But that was my generation. And we were just all around. So I, I always feel like there's some sort of emotional connection between, you know, a lot of us in, right. in, in, of a certain generation or a certain place. And, yeah, I don't know anybody really well, but I, I don't – I don't feel uncomfortable. Right. You know what I mean? Well, because we've seen the same struggles. We yeah. played the same rooms. Yeah. We dealt with the same shitty pokers yeah, we, and when we were around. We were just sitting around. Yeah. Uh, you know, at a table at night. Yeah. Talking. 
there's probably this 10 or 12 guys that uh, I stayed close to touch with. We, In fact, we have – it started as a weekly night out at a bar, and we yeah. just hang out and get drunk like yeah. the old days and yeah. talk about all the old days. And then COVID came, and it became a Zoom thing. So that's still happening. And then people are popping on. Jonathan Katz jumps on. Gabe yeah. Abelson. Gabe Abelson. Yeah. Well, great, man. Well, it was great talking to you. This was a blast. And your kid wants to be a comedy writer. Yep. We're writing something together for the first time, so we'll see how that goes. How is he? Uh, he has good natural instincts. Uh -huh. You know, he thinks visually, yeah. which you need to do. Yeah. Uh, I just have to see how dedicated he is. That's kind of what it comes down to because if you want to write, you got to find yourself writing almost like every single day. And also, like, it's like the entire business is changing. The money's changing. The outlets are changing. It, yeah. it seems like self-generating is where it's at. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I just watched a documentary about YouTube, and I kind of felt it was coming that – you know, mainstream show business does not have, you, you know, if you can figure out how to build your own show business, you can do it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely where it's 15 years from now, it'll just be versions of that. Like yeah. Dana's show, it's the same thing. You know, yeah. there's GoFundMe and, yeah. you know, and then you get to do what you want and you yeah. don't have to deal with executives and it's, you know, no agents and managers. Yeah. and That's the future, huh? Yeah, I think so. All right, man. Well, good talking to you. Groovy. Okay, that was Mike Rowe, if you're just tuning in. <laughs> uh, that was fun to talk to him, fun to catch up. Uh, again, you can get the book wherever you get books. It's called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald. Yes, comedy. Hang out for a minute, people. All right, listen, if you want to hear two guys get very excited about Al Pacino, Charles Durning, bank robbery movies, and New York in the 70s. There's a new bonus episode up for Full Marin subscribers where I talk with Brendan about Dog Day Afternoon. There is something about Al Pacino in this that was noticeable within the first two minutes of him being on screen that he is simultaneously a schlub and a movie star. And there's just no, there's no explaining it. Like it is, you can't, you can't just train someone to be that and have that kind of charisma. You can do right. all the method acting you want, but you're not going to come across as both a totally broken, barely respectable person and at the same time feel the the magnetism of being a star. Well, and that's his, he's that was, able to do it. That was his thing. And I, yeah. and I think like because I think about this when I think about these guys, and I've talked about it before, that, you know, that you, you know, as some of these method actors get older, they can really kind of rest on their sort of tics and quirks and, and habits uh, that, that identify them a, as emotional expressionists. Uh, but, you know, Pacino later in life, I like I always go back to that that Kevorkian biopic on HBO. Mm -hmm. I mean, like he can really, you know, take the emotional risks you know, in a very real way, still, if he wants to, or else he's just going to like, hey, here he is. What are we at? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hoo-ha. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He can, he can hoo-ha his way through an entire movie now. <laughs> That's available now for all Full Marin subscribers. To sign up for the Full Marin, click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Here we go. This is kind of a neely sounding telecaster bit of distorted business. 
Boomer lives. Monkey and the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so.